Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now it's time to listen to this week's message. Good morning, church. Y'all doing well today? I'm doing really well. I am um, deeply stirred this morning. What an amazing job, Tony, and the worship team. Would you let them know how much you appreciate them serving and leading? That's awesome. One of, one of my certainly favorites, at least in the last few months. Amazing, amazing moments together in worship. And uh, can I just tell you how much I love you? Is that okay as your pastor? Can I just say that? From the outset, I'm overwhelmed with love, appreciation, and just uh, deep gratitude for what Jesus is doing in our community. And um, I'm just grateful to be a part. I, I don't ever want to get to the place where I begin to forget or don't have as clear reminiscing of why I began on this journey many years ago. Of not just the journey of following Jesus, but the journey of pastoring and what God had called. Why did I go into this from the beginning? And, you know, there's so many people that need such hope. I think it's high time for the church of Jesus Christ and our nation to shine as bright as she's ever shown. Our country, our nation needs it. Amen. And so if you have a Bible this morning, I want you to go with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. This is uh, Dr. Physician Luke, his second account, essentially the first one. He wrote to Theophilus to give us an account of the eyewitness work of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ. He then gives for us in the book of Acts, 28 chapters, uh, um, of just beautiful text of what looks like, what the, the, the pristine, most unadulterated, pure picture of the New Testament church look like. And Acts chapter 20 is going to be our text, which we call our tweet from heaven today. And if I hadn't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Pastor Craig. And again, we're just glad that you're with us. Welcome those that are streaming live. I saw just a few moments ago there were seemingly as many streaming live as there were in the room. And so we do welcome those who stream live with us each and every week. Acts chapter 20. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand right quick. Some, one of the ushers there in the back will serve you. Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin reading in verse 17 in just a few moments. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. But I've been thinking a lot this week about moments uh, in which we have the opportunity to define ourselves. I've been thinking a lot this last week of the moments that God presents us in our lives to determine the values that we will live by, the legacy that we're ultimately going to leave. I've been thinking a lot this week about the hills that I want to die on, the hills that I want our church, so to speak, to die on. This, by the way, has been happening in front of us right now for the last probably about six months. You, you saw the transition of two presidents, and I'm going to speak just for a minute of the political climate because, again, I want to speak to where we are as a nation. You've got one president that was on his way out, and he was trying to shore up his legacy. You have another president on his way in. He's determining what's going to shape his administration. He's trying to determine what values, what core values are going to shape his administration. And when you get elected president, particularly of the United States of America, your life will be defined by what you do in those four, or if you're re-elected as an incumbent candidate, those eight years. Now, we know all in this room that your life is a whole lot longer. Every president lives more than four years. Every president lives more than eight years. But the reality is, people only remember you by what, by what shaped them and what shaped the nation and what you did in that time of leadership. That's all the, way, the only way you're ever remembered. I share that for two reasons. I share it, number one, because I want to remind you to pray for our president. There's not a person in this room that shouldn't be praying for President Donald Trump. We're commanded to do that. We want to do that. We should be doing that. A whole lot more than we criticize and, and become cynical. We should be praying. We should spend in our lives 
interceding for people that are in leadership above us. That's the first thing. Number two, even when you don't agree with their policies, we're commanded to honor and pray for them. Secondly, I say that today because I want you in this congregation today to have a similar, similar moment to what these guys are going through right now. What do you mean, Craig? I know probably you've not been elected as president of a society over the last six months. Or I know you're probably not likely putting together some kind of administration. But there are, in our lives, what I call key moments where you decide what is going to define the rest of your life. You've got to make a decision that these are the values, this is the lifestyle I will lead, this is the legacy I want to leave for my children and my children's children. These principles are going to shape, if you will, how you live. Author, philosopher Beverly Donofrio, she said, one day can make your entire life. She said, on the contrary, one day, one single day can ruin your entire life. She said, if you live to 80 years old, essentially, you'll look back over your life and you'll see your entire life was determined by decisions you made on four or five days. Four or five days of the 80 years determined how you lived the 80 years. Four or five days, there were clear decisions that were life-defining moments, principles that shaped your entire life. I've been asking, you may call it bold, but I've been asking God this week, I've been asking for today to be one of those four or five days for people in this room. That it becomes life-defining moments that says, this is the hill I will die on. In Acts chapter 20, Paul gives us a farewell speech that summarizes, I believe, what I think are the six values he lived his life by. Now we could say that the Apostle Paul was one of perhaps the most influential missionaries. He wrote 13 out of 27 New Testament books. He took three missionary journeys. He wrote more, little less than half of our New Testament. I think these are the Six values he's lived his life by. Say, Craig, what's happened in Acts 20? Well, Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving a goodbye, farewell speech to the church leaders in Ephesus. He spent the last three years of his life in Ephesus. And as far as he knows, he's never going to see any of these guys again. He's never going to see these gals again. He's headed to Jerusalem from uh, Ephesus. He's going to go on to Rome where he's going to be martyred. He's going to have his head cut off. The emperor Nero. This is his farewell speech to them. The question that is now posed to us this morning is this. If you were making a farewell speech to people you've given three years of your life to, what values would you include? If you were giving a farewell speech to the end of your journey to people that you loved with your whole life, what values would you include? I used to lead a Bible study at our church in North Cleveland called, uh, called Forge. It was of young men. One of the things we would do is I would have them draw out a tombstone. And I would tell them, take a week and put on that tombstone five or six things that you want to be remembered by. You can only be five or six. I want you to put on the tombstone what you want spoken at your funeral, your eulogy. You know, I would tell them there's famous last words like the the great American patriot, Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale said, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country, right? He said he wishes he could have more. Or the farewell speech of the country boy from Cherokee County. Y'all watch this. (laughs) Right? The famous last words of a redneck. Y'all watch this. Right? By the way, a little bit of Bible trivia here. Acts chapter 20, this is, this is the only recorded speech in the entire book of Acts that's made to other Christians. Did you know that? Every recorded speech and sermon is made to unbelievers. You know what that means? The Holy Spirit's telling you, this is how you should think about your life, believers. You want to know what your life, how you should perceive, how you live before your creator? This is it. It's the only speech we have recorded, extended speech in the entire book. Two believers. Acts chapter 20, beginning of verse 17, there are six statements from Paul's farewell speech. If you want to say, Craig, how should I write my funeral speech? Here's how you should write it. Acts chapter 20, he said, I did not shrink 
Notice this. I did not shrink. Go with me, just read verse 20 for a minute. He's leaving Ephesus and he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable unto you. He go jump to verse 26 real quick. He says, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. That's our tweet. For I did not shrink, verse 27, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Number one, number one defining characteristic of what it means to live a God success life is number one, I made sure my generation knew the truth. I made sure my community knew the truth. I made sure my generation at my season of life knew the truth. Twice Paul says to them in verse 20, uh, verse 20 through 26, 27, he says to them, I've done my duty. I delivered the message that God had given me. I told you everything I knew. See, listen to me, church. Paul saw himself primarily as a bearer of a message. Before he saw himself as an apostle, before he saw himself as a pastor, he saw himself as a bearer. That bearer was a message of the gospel. As a messenger, he was not responsible whether or not people liked the message. He was just responsible that everybody he knew heard it and understood it and heard it clearly. That was his responsibility. Everybody was going to hear the gospel from my lips. And for Paul, I've told you, church, this was serious business. Look at verse 26 with me. It was so serious. He said, I am innocent of the blood of all. Paul's Paul. Isn't that a little dramatic, buddy? Just tone it down a bit. That's an odd statement, right? Like, why would he use that language? Why would he say, I'm innocent of the blood of all? Because Paul saw the gospel as a life or death message. This is not a good news or a good option or a good opinion. It was the good news to humanity. And you say, Craig, why did he use this language? Paul here is likely thinking of the Old Testament passage where the prophet Ezekiel, you'll see it on the screen behind you, also your card in front of you, Ezekiel 33, 8. This is where the prophet Ezekiel made a very strong uh, comment. He says in verse, uh, uh, verse 8 of Ezekiel chapter 33, If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. That's what God's saying. And you don't speak to, to, to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person will die in his iniquity. Because that's what wicked people do. They die in their sin. The wages of sin is death. It always brings spiritual death and then physical death. The enemy's out to still kill and destroy anything that's good, pure, and godly in our life. He says they're going to die in iniquity, but his blood I will hold you accountable to. I gave you the message. My God, folks, if that don't make you shudder, that's not a verse to keep on reading to go to verse 9 and just keep reading in your Bible reading plan. If I gave you a message to warn Woodstock of my coming judgment, and you don't, I'll hold your hands accountable. The blood will be on you, is what he says to Ezekiel. You're a bearer of my message. What is God saying? I had a message to give the city, and you didn't give it to him. You held back. You held on to it. When I know something and I don't warn you, I'm guilty of that. I've told you the story before several years ago. I was watching a, a talk show. I never watched talk shows. God had to be speaking to me through this talk show. I heard this talk show one day of this man who lived in Los Angeles. At 3 o'clock a.m. one day, he was driving. There had been an earthquake that evening in Los Angeles. He was crossing one of the bridges in Los Angeles. And he told in this talk show that as he turned, he saw the taillights of the car in front of him. As he was crossing the bridge, they began to disappear. And he thought that was very odd. So he pulled his car off to the side, and thankfully he did. Thank God he pulled his car to the side because he went up there, and there was a mineral section of the bridge that had completely fallen, and the taillights had gone off, had been full of a family as they went down to their death. 
He pulled off to the side of the bridge and all of a sudden the cars, one after the other, were coming. He would see headlights coming across the bridge and he got his shirt and he began to wave it. Now he was off to the side of the road. He was trying to get cars to stop. He said, I saw four more cars zoom past me at 60 miles an hour. He said, what would you do at 3 o'clock a.m. when you were driving down a bridge and a man was standing off the side of the road with his shirt waved? You would just continue to go too. And he said, they went four cars off to their death. He said, over my dead body, is this going to happen again? He said, I saw a bus coming across the bridge. He said, if that bus is going off the deep end they're taking me on the front end of that that bus and so he got in the middle of the road and he began to just just flail and he was throwing his shirt around like this and the bus driver started honking like get out of my way it's three o'clock get out of my way and he wouldn't get out of the way finally the bus driver had to stop and he said the bus driver opened the doors and he came out and he started cussing at the man what in the world are you doing and he found out that man the the bridge is open just before him and and and, and as i'm watching that the question came to me what would i have done if i would have been on that bridge that night i would have done the same thing i would have gotten there in the front of that i would have tried to take my car turn it sideways do everything i can to stop would i have cared if people thought I was an idiot? Would I care if people thought that I was crazy? No. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, when you have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't care what people think. You don't care if they're going into a crisis eternity. You stand in the middle of the road. You take off your shirt and you say, I am a bearer of the gospel. It's my responsibility. It's our job as believers. It's our job as the church to preach the whole gospel, the whole gospel in the whole world. In fact, it's C.H. Spurgeon said it's the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. That's our job. That's our job. That's what God's called us to do. So what is the gospel? The gospel starts off as bad news. The gospel is an announcement that the human race stands underneath the judgment of God because of our rebellion. The, the gospel starts with bad news, very bad news. We are dead in sin. We are dead in our trespasses. There's nothing we can do about it. We're alienated from the life of God. Our minds, in our minds, we're but enemies of God. But after the bad news, come on somebody say, after the bad news. Then comes the good news. And the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth and he died a sinner's death on a cross that he did not deserve. And Jesus came and died for us what we can never do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life that we were supposed to live. And he died a sinner's death that we should have died. And now he offers a grace of forgiveness to everybody who repent and put faith in Jesus Christ. And that the gospel declares to you in our country and our nation that if you'll turn from your rebelliousness and you'll turn from your rebellion and your waywardness and your hard-heartedness, then God will show you grace because you cannot save yourself. But when you say, God, I need you, He will save you and give you eternal life. That's the gospel. Listen to me, church. We are not responsible for how people in our city respond to it. We are responsible that everybody in our city hears it and understands it. We're responsible. So here's my question. Does your community know the truth? Does your family know the truth? Is there anybody in your family that's not yet heard the gospel from your lips? Have you made it clear to everyone in your life? Have they felt its weightiness? You say, Craig, you mean the whole world? No! Look at verse 31. For three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you in my community with tears. Paul's not talking about the whole world. He's talking about your community. Day and night, I never cease to admonish you. Does your community know the truth? I told the story a couple months ago, but 
when I read, I, I, when I was first out in ministry, I was doing a ministry to a government housing funding project in, on Hamill Road in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I was ministering there week after week, and I finally led two young men to the Lord. One name was Josh Green, one name was Brandon Real. I'll never forget when I led Brandon to the Lord. He called me later that night, and he said, man, I got on my bike and drove to Wendy's. He worked at Wendy's. He said, I, I, I can't believe it took me this long to understand the truth. He said, I felt like everybody was staring at me on Hickson Pike because my, 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 my mouth was smiling from ears to ears. And he said, Craig, do you really believe this? He said, if you really believe this, why don't you go and tell everybody you see? <laughs> you really believe this gospel thing you said? That's the kind of question, isn't it? Do we really believe the message or do we not? Do we really believe heaven and hell are real? That's just a question today. Sometimes people look at me and they're like, Craig, you're an educated person. You're a smart person. You really believe in a hell? Well, Jesus believed in it. And if you read the Gospels, he talked more about hell than he did heaven. He did. They say, like, you believe in, like, literal flames and smoke? Well, listen, church, the Bible uses a lot of metaphor. And I don't know everything, but even if the, literal, even if the flames and smoke are, are symbols, whatever these things are pointing to is a terrible reality. Revelation 21a calls the fiery abyss of burning sulfur where there's weeping and darkness and gnashing of teeth and the smoke of the torment ascends forever. Listen, if those are symbols, then what are those symbols for? A summer vacation at Panama City? A winter retreat in the mountains? No. It's a terrible reality. And listen to me, I don't know how much clear to say at Dwelling Place. I want to say it very clear. At Dwelling Place, I believe it is morally wrong to know the truth and believe it and live in complacency. It is morally sinful for us to do that. Morally wrong. It demands something of us. It ought to change the way we look at our stuff. In Long Beach, California, you can visit a ship there. I've been there that's been turned into a museum. It was originally launched as the Queen Mary. Many of you have maybe seen this. The Queen Mary is a beautiful, beautiful ship. When it was originally launched, it was originally launched as the ultimate luxury cruise liner of the time for rich people. It had all the accommodations and amenities for the rich people. It housed 3,000. Everybody say 3,000. There were 3,000 people when it was a luxury cruise liner. It had 3,000 people to be shuttled back and forth through the Atlantic. Every possible convenience. In wartime, however, they had to transition the ship. They transitioned it and refitted it so it could house 15,000 people. So it went 3,000 people with every amenity to 15,000 people. Rooms that once slept one couple now slept eight couples. So ones that used to sleep two people now slept 16 people. What's the point? Wartime and peacetime demand different things. We are not in peacetime in America. It is not time for us to be in accommodation and luxuries. It demands something more than us. Wartime demands that we put people on the ship. Wartime demands that we, we don't sit and look at the world like a playground. Wartime demands that we see the world as a battleground and that we are to literally save people from the flames of heaven or the flames of hell. The same thing is true for us. When we think this is a life and death message, we at Dwelling Place are not trying to recruit people to a religious movement. We are trying to get people to understand we are to carry the gospel, the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And at our best, this Queen Mary should just totally uh, uh, define our approach as a church. What is it? We're not trying to build the Queen Mary luxury liner for Christians. We're trying to build a rescue station for lost, broken people. We're trying to build a rescue station for people that are without hope. Now, it doesn't have to be trashy. We want our gatherings. We want our buildings to look good. We want to have warm, inviting, well-kept environments done with excellence for the glory of God but we do it with the understanding that our resources and the dollars we're given are given for us and to us to create it not a cruise liner for Christians but a rescue station for the broken and the lifeless 
We use one of our core values here. Our values is called missional stewardship. You hear me sometimes at the offering say resourceful excellence. What does that mean? You do it excellently, but you do it with the wise use of resources. We, we, we call it missional stewardship. I will go ahead and tell you in Dwelling Places Future, the resources we are going to be given are not going to be given to us to build a big monument to Jesus and just have a big building in which a lot of people can come. We want to leverage our, our resources to build platforms in which the gospel can be spread to the nation of the earth and disciples can be made churches can be planted and lives be transformed church we are called to be bearers of the message I was preaching I was preaching last night in Cleveland with a bunch of teenagers teenagers that live in our community right here in Cobb County and I got done preaching, and it was a very eclectic group of people. It was a very economical, ecumenical effort with Catholics and Lutherans and Baptists and Methodists and unchurched and Pentecostal and Charismatic. And so it's always a unique group when you preach to them. But I got done preaching. I was on the right side of the altar, and I was praying for just different students, and I noticed this one girl began to weep pretty uncontrollably. And I prayed for her just briefly. I prayed for her the night before, and I could tell she wanted to tell me something, but she didn't tell me. And uh, I finished preaching, and... Um, I was praying for them, and I stood back up, and I walked to the altar. <clears throat> a few minutes later, this young lady approached me, and um, she got really close to my shoulder, and she began to weep, began to cry. And uh, I put my arm around her, and I just put her head right here on my chest, and I said, honey, what's going on? And she said, this is really, really hard to tell you. She was kind of speaking through her tears, and she said, you know, I'm not a person who's been a partier, but a month ago I was at the beach in Florida. She said, one night I got drunk, and I was raped by a 24-year-old. And that happened 30 days ago. And immediately I'm there in the altar. She's crying. She says, I don't know what to do with it. The tremors and the fear and the terror and the nightmares I'm having right now as a 17-year-old. And so I began just to minister as the Spirit of God just gave me words to minister to. And just hug her and, and care for her and get her contact information so that I can follow up with her, which I will do this afternoon. And just talk and just ask her, who knows? Does your mom know? And just begin to counsel her and encourage her. But when I did that, I, I, I took a different approach. I took, a I took a different approach last night in my prayer. I said, God, please don't let me be a person that plants a church in this area and stands by the side and lets people go to bed at night in utter terror. You want to save people? Why would you do that then, God? Let our church permeate the schools of our, of our nation. Let our church permeate the schools of our community and win every single one of them to you, Jesus. Don't do this to us. Don't let me sit by and just have good Sunday gatherings. That's not what we want to do, God. That's not why you've called us to be here. You've called me to be a bearer of the message. I've got but one life to live. Paul says, I've never stopped day and night admonishing you with the gospel. Church, may this be our, our heartbeat. May we never be ashamed. May we never be ashamed. He goes on and says, you know what? Uh, Paul says in verse 19, read with me, verse 19, he said, I served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Number two, I directed people's attention toward Jesus, not towards me. You want to know what a successful life is? I, I directed people's attention towards Jesus. Towards Jesus, not towards me. He said, I've served the Lord with all humility and tears and trials. Now, that's not typically how great leaders describe themselves, is it? <laughs> Most leaders I've been around, they talk about their victories. They talk about their accomplishments. They talk about their strengths. 
In fact, the word humility, if you'll put it up there, verse 19, the word humility there in verse 19 is often translated weakness, but that's not really the word. The word is actually uh, low or defeated or completely weak. It was a word used in the first century to describe an insult. But the word humility is used over 200 times in the Bible, and it's almost always presented as a virtue. Now, here's my question. Why does Paul take a culturally normal word that's intended as an insult and turn it into the greatest virtue? Why does he take something that people mock at and turn it into a great strength? Why? Here's why. Because Christian ministry at its core, church, is not about extraordinary men and women of great power that you should emulate. The story of Christian ministry is about a great Savior who can save and redeem and then use the weakest, most broken, most guilty of sinners. That's what Christian ministry is. And Paul doesn't want to leave Ephesus and leave the Ephesians with an example to admire. He wants to leave them with a Savior to trust in. I don't want to leave this church with my example to admire, but a Savior to put your hope in. And in weakness and in trials and in tears is how God demonstrates the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's how he demonstrates the sufficiency of our Savior. The gospel is not about how awesome I am. The gospel is not about how awesome you are. The gospel is about how awesome our Jesus is. How amazing our Jesus is. In fact, Tim Keller in his book, he said a humble and weak person will show a crucified Savior better to a listener than a polished, pulled together expert. That's what he said. Because that's how it happened for us, Tim said. We weren't saved by pulling ourselves together. If you ever come into church one day and somebody gets up and tells their, their testimony, they talk about when they pulled themselves together and they finally got themselves together, that said person does not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because there ain't nobody who pulled themselves together. Jesus was pulled apart so you could be put back together. You didn't pull the strings together. You didn't pull pieces of your life together. No, that's not what tells the world that our Savior is sufficient. He says, but it's by admitting we were sinners and we called on the one who was pulled apart for us that's the gospel and as your pastor can you hear me today I want your attention to be on Jesus not on Craig and I want your attention to be on Jesus and not on Chad I don't want to posture myself up here as a man who has it all together for a couple reasons number one because that's not true that's my wife she called me a liar I ain't got it all together but let me tell you the second reason why I want you to feel that way because I want you to see that I'm a recovering sinner just like you are And I want you to learn to hope in Jesus like I've hoped in Jesus. By the way, I want you, what you, what you don't need in life today is an, an impressive example to emulate, but an all-sufficient Savior to follow. By the way, this is how what structures my parenting. Dads, do you do this? This, is, this principle structures all of my parenting. To be honest with you, my kids, I want them, and I want to help them to see that I'm a sinner just like they are. Dads, you don't have to tell your kids you're Superman. They already think I'm Superman. They do. My three kids think I've hung the moon. I come in, I'm the fun zone. I don't need to tell them I'm Superman. You know what I need to tell my parent or my kids? I need to admit my sin in front of them. I did it this week. I made a terrible mistake parenting with my son. Terrible. Out of discipline, out of anger. It was horrible. It was my worst one. Maybe I'll tell you about it in a couple weeks when it's not so fresh. But it was bad. It was bad in a moment of being tired. Just being tired the last few weeks. And in an anger moment, I... I did something wrong. You know what I did? I had to go back in there and I, sometimes I admit to my kids my wrong, my sin towards their mother. Sometimes I'll come in and say, I've done your mother really wrong. Sometimes it's admitting my sin to them. Why? I ask their forgiveness because I want them to learn that daddy is a saved sinner too and that they can learn to hope in Jesus for their insecurities and hope in Jesus for their failings and hope in Jesus for their weaknesses and not act like I got it all together. Do you do that with your kids, dad? You do that with your kids, mom. I don't want them to grow up 
trying to live like or live up to a model like a Pharisee. I want them to grow up hoping in a Savior like a Christian. And Jesus followed. So confession of our sin and our weaknesses and our tears and our trials are how God wants to demonstrate to the world the, the sufficiency of our Savior. You understand why it is that when you became a Christian, God didn't make everything easy? Why would Paul's life be characterized by tears and trials? Think about it. Why would it be so, so difficult? Because tears and trials are how God keeps us weak in ourselves so we can be strong in pointing people to Him. And if I'm strong in myself, I can't be strong in pointing people to Him. So He makes sure the tears and trials come so that you're weak in yourself that He might be strong. And when you've been broken and you've been weakened, you can better testify to the strength of the Savior. Strong people in their own calves can't testify to the strength of a God who can sustain. But people who are weak in their calves can testify to a God who is able to sustain you even in your weakest moments. I'm going to mention one more thing before I move on. This is the heart behind this. This is, by the way, the heart behind sacrifice. Everybody say sacrifice. You want to become like Jesus, you better learn to sacrifice. Can I just make it clear, church? I don't know how else to say it. If you want to learn to be like Jesus, you better learn to sacrifice. Sacro, fat, sacrificial generosity is deliberately diverting yourself of the resources you could use to strengthen yourself so you can point people to Jesus. That's what sacrifice is. When you give sacrificially, you're saying, you know what? My life is not about me. My talents, my time, my treasure were not given to me for me. They were given to me to help point people to him. And we give sacrificially, we voluntarily put ourselves through tears and trials so that other people can see Jesus. Number three, I invested deeply in God's community, the church. The Apostle Paul said, you want the big, you want a hill to die on? I invested deeply in God's family, the church. Say, Craig, where's that? Look at verse 28 with me. He said, pay very careful attention to your, yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I was in a private school a couple of weeks ago, and I walked in, and I thought, man, these are some beautiful, beautiful facilities. I thought there were some rich people up in this community who believe in the vision of this school. <laughs> they believe in the vision and success of this school because somebody has sunk some money into this. You know what Paul said? There's one institution that somebody sunk some major capital in. And that's Jesus' blood when he sunk it into the church. He believed in it and he put his blood on the line. He put his love on the line. He sunk some resources into the church of Jesus Christ. He gave up his very life. He poured out his very blood for it. He made an investment. No one's ever made a bigger investment in any institution. And Paul says if Jesus poured out his blood for the church, I'm going to pour out my life into the church. If he poured out his blood for for the people of God, I'm going to pour out my resource, time, energy, sacrifice into the thing that he poured out for. Now, I know that your calling's not like my calling. Your role's not like the Apostle Paul's. Your role's not like my role. You might not be called to be pastor like I am, but the church, and I say without hesitation, don't mince my words, church. Man, I feel boldness in this. If Jesus poured out his blood for the church, the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the center of your life. There should be nothing that's at the center of your life other than the church. The church should be the center priority of your family, the center priority about what you do, the center priority about how you spend your time, the center priority about what you do with your finances, why? Because the church, Paul tells us, is Christ's body on the earth. That means it's the work and the means by which he does his work on the earth. I've described it like this before, but I don't know how else to give it to you other than this. He said the church is his body. Church is his body. Think about it like this. I got a body. I got a mind. My mind tells my body everything. My mind tells my body to do everything. Right? No mind, no life. Now Jesus, the Bible says, the Bible says Jesus is the mind. So I don't know if you've ever done this, but when my brain wants to say something, maybe you all have accomplished it, but I just hadn't got it yet. 
I can't get my brain to telepathically communicate a, a phrase or a sentence or a paragraph, boom, and, and shoot it and beam it into Jessica's mind. For some reason, I can't do that. I've tried so hard, but I can't do that. Do you know what happens when my mind, Jesus, wants to tell somebody else something that my mind wants to tell them? It communicates to my mouth, and my mouth tells Jessica the message that the mind wants Jessica to know. Now, I don't know if you've ever been able to do this, but when my left elbow itches, I've tried to, but telepathically, I cannot get my mind to tell my left elbow to stop itching. I can't beam it over there. Here's what my, here's what my mind does. My mind says to right elbow, it says, your brother's itching. He says, take your fingers and go over there and itch him. So what happens is my right, my right brother will go over my left brother and he'll itch him. And then left brother will stop itching. Listen to me, newsflash folks. Which means God says when you separate yourself from my body, you separate yourself from Jesus. It's a strong analogy. I want you to know I can't do these things. What does that mean, Craig? That means that's how God works in our world. Newsflash, newsflash church, when God wants to work in your life, rarely does he just answer with a zap from heaven. Rarely does he just speak to you in your soul. When God wants to speak to you, he says, oh, I won't whisper to you. I'll go down to my pastor, and I'll use him as my mouthpiece to declare to you. And so if you're not in the church, you can't complain that God's not working in your life because God doesn't work apart from his body. So I'm alienated from his body and wondering why God's not doing anything. He's not doing anything because that's how he works. He works through his body. That's hard, isn't it? That's tough for a Sunday morning 930 gathering. That's tough right there. That's tough to swallow, but that's how it works. That's what he says. God says, no, I know you want me to zap you, but I ain't doing it. Get yourself in a connect group. You want encouragement? Get in a connect group. I'm not going to zap you from heaven. I've got some people around you that are good scratchers. I've got some people that have some awesome calves. But you've got to be willing to connect to the body. Or else if you disconnect from my body, you disconnect from me, Jesus says. You disconnect from me. So people, they're so complaining. Oh, God's not working in my life. God's like, stop complaining and get yourself connected. And then, and then you'll, I'll do, do what I told you to do. And then I'll start doing something. I mean, it's the truth. But not only does he say the church is the body, he says the church is his bride. I've told you this before. You can't like me and hate my bride. You can't be like, oh, Craig, dude, I love you, bro. Yeah, me and you, tight, man. I just can't stand that Meredith, though. <laughs> Arrogant, lying girl. Whew, I can't stand her. You have a problem with her, guess who you got a problem with? Me. You got a problem with the bride, church? Guess who you got a problem with? Jesus, the groom. Folks, this, this, is, exactly, this is exactly what Jesus says. He gives it very clear. Very, very clear. You can't hate. You can't hate the bride and love the groom. You can't do it. You can't dislike the church and say you love Jesus. You can't, you can't say you love Jesus and be disconnected from his bride. You can't do that. This is how Jesus gives. Craig, Craig I don't like you. No, no. But church, Craig, is, is, is so screwed up. I know it's not perfect. That's why Jesus died for it. Church is so screwed up, Jesus had to die for it. So Welcome. I don't go to church because there's hypocrites. Oh, awesome. Welcome to the club. Because we're all just hypocrites trying to be less hypocritical this week than we were last week. Because ain't nobody does what you said in those songs. You had moments this week and you didn't do what those lyrics said. So, hey, welcome to the club. We're all hypocrites trying to be less hypocritical. That's why Jesus died for us. That's why we do things. This is, this is Jesus' way of impacting. Listen to me. I know the political season that we're in. And the tension in our nation has shaken a lot of us. Can I be quite honest with you? Many of us are really discouraged. If not, we've lost faith in our government altogether. And I just want to say to you, in the big picture, that can be really, really good. That can be really, really good. Because we know the ultimate hope and the ultimate salvation has never been found in politics anyways. It's never been found in a, who's in the White House. It's what the church house is doing. I mean, beyond, I, I started thinking about it this week. 
many of us got so emotionally invested in the election that many of us got so emotionally invested and we knew that by how we responded when our candidate didn't make it. And I think more than ever, church, this is the time for the church to rise up. We're the only ones in our community and our nation that can offer real hope. We're the only ones that can offer real salvation. We're the only ones who can heal deep wounds of society. We're the only ones who can demonstrate true multicultural unity. You want to talk about racial and cultural lines? It's the church of Jesus Christ. Nobody else that can do it better. Jesus is blood. This is time for the for dwelling place church to rise up in Woodstock. It's our time to rise up in Atlanta. As our confidence in politics falter, based on what I read in Scripture, what Atlanta looks like for my kids, and what Atlanta looks like for my grandkids, and what Atlanta looks like for our future students, and our future immigrants, and our future individuals, has less to do with who sits on the governor's mansion downtown, who sits in the White House in the next eight years, and has more to do with what we do in the coming days at Dwelling Place. It has more to do with what we do in the church, in our community. Way more. Way more. The future. Rides. God has a body, and that body is the center point of everything he does on the earth. So if you know that and understand that, you'll find your role and you'll be deeply committed to it. Paul says, the success of my life is I'm deeply committed to the church. Number four, I've been faithful to do all that Jesus told me to do. I've been faithful to do all that Jesus told me to do. You want to talk about a successful life? Look at verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish, Paul said, my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Did you see that? This is personal to Paul. This is personal. He had received a personal assignment from Jesus. He said, my course and the ministry I received. Listen to me, church. Focus in for a moment. God doesn't give the same assignment to everybody. But he has given you an assignment, believer. If you're in a believer, he's given you an assignment. And at the end of the day, we'll answer to him for what we did with what he gave us. Listen to me. You do not control what assignment you get. You control how faithful you are with the assignment he assigns. So stop worrying about the assignment you get. Stop trying to determine how God uses your faithfulness. No, no, no. You're just called to be faithful as a steward over whatever assignment he gives you. And stop looking and comparing and pointing to everybody else's assignment. You understand your assignment because you're going to be responsible before God for how you were faithful to the assignment you were given. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 and 2, all that is required of stewards is that they be found talented. All that is required of stewards in the kingdom is that they be found valuable. All that is required of students is they may be found impactful in America. All that is required of students is that they may be found faithful. A steward in that day was a servant. A servant wasn't responsible to provide for the house. He wasn't responsible to make for any big decisions for the house. He wasn't responsible to make any decisions about the future of the house or the future of the church. He was responsible to be faithful to what the master told him to do at the house. He was faithful to be required and desired and accountable to do whatever the master had said said listen to me a lot of us in america in a capitalistic culture we spend a lot of time thinking about how successful we can be how much of an impact we're going to make that's not the concern of a steward success and impact and failure are master words faithfulness is the concern of a steward don't worry about success and awesomeness and impact and and influence in your culture and dreams no, no don't worry about that worry about faithfulness to the assignment you've been given that's what stewards do stewards are found Faithful. And what we find in Scripture, church, is that God uses ordinary acts of faithfulness to accomplish the most extraordinary things. Oh, yeah, he does. Think of the little boy offering the five loaves and two fish. God just used ordinary young man 
to do extraordinary purposes. He does this with every time. And every once in a while, God, I, church, I don't know why God does this. I think he does it just so we stay in the race. Every once in a while, God will give you a glimpse. I had one personally just a few weeks ago. He'll give you a glimpse. He doesn't do it all the time, but every once in a while, he'll give you one. I, think it, I sincerely think it's just to give you encouragement to keep going. I was in Los Angeles. I was at the Dream Center. I was sitting at the lunch table. <clears throat> I was sitting there next to two young ladies we had met earlier that day as we were um, painting the wall. We painted the wall of the uh, sex trafficking, the human trafficking floor at the Dream Center. And we're down at lunchtime, and these two young ladies that I'd met uh, sat next to me, or maybe I sat next to them, I don't know. But we were, I were conversing, and there was this young lady to my left, beautiful young lady, short hair, and I just started conversing with her. And some of the people in this room were at the table with me. And uh, I looked over at her. I don't know how the conversation came, but I asked her where she went to school. And she said, I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And I said, seriously? She said, yeah. She said, I went to Moody, and I said, uh, I know this is a long shot, but you happen to know a man named Taylor Schaumbert? And she's like, oh, my God, yeah, I know Taylor Schaumbert. Now, Taylor Schaumbert was a student of mine that went through the growth phases we had when he was a sixth grader at Free Chapel when I was there in 2007. And she said, yeah, it's awesome, and it's amazing to see the plan of God in his life. And I said, I know this is another long shot, but you happen to know a girl named Barry Bliss? And Barry Bliss is Katerina Bliss's sister. And, um, and uh, she said, oh, my God, are you serious? And I was like, no, 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 wait. She's like, Barry Bliss is my RA. I'm like, seriously? She's like, yeah, my RA for two years at Moody. She poured into my life. She's like my homegirl, like my mentor. And I pause, and the, I mean, it's like the Spirit of God flooded me, and I'm like, you are fully my fruit. Because I poured three years of my life into Barry. And I thought, oh my God, what's heaven going to be like? I'm going to find people from everywhere, church. Find people from the nations that said, this one night when you were burdened, you prayed in the spirit, you didn't have any idea, but you prayed for me. I'm here, I'm here. And every once in a while, God gives us glimpses into eternity. He lets us peer behind the curtain and see that, man, even when God says, hey, give that waitress a big tip, and you put, God bless you, Jesus loves you, and you gave her a $100 tip, God used that $100 tip to bring about change in our life. Who knows, church, how when you are just faithful to do ordinary, obedient acts to God, God uses it extraordinarily for his kingdom. And I was able to sit in Los Angeles, California and see three years of my life had been poured into another person who God enabled me to meet by just crazy circumstances. Wow, church. Some of you, you're faithfully parenting your child, telling someone about Jesus because every act of faithfulness God uses in his plan. Did you hear me? Did you hear me, church? I don't care what act of faithfulness you've done that you think has gone unnoticed and unseen. No, no, no. God cannot allow faithful acts to not be used in his plan. Not a cup of cold water is wasted in my name, Jesus said. Number five, I finished strong. I finished strong. Casey, would you come? I'm almost at five and six. I'm going to close this down. Verse 23, Paul was determined to finish strong. Look at verse 23. He explains that the Holy Spirit has told him that a, a lot of hardships are in his future. A lot of hardships are in my future. Look at verse 24. Would you read it with me? But none of these things move me. Afflictions await me. Imprisonment awaits me. But I don't count my life of any value. And he goes on in verse 24 in such a beautiful way and says, None of these things move me if I only may finish my course and the ministry the which I receive from the Lord Jesus. In another place, Paul said, It matters less how you start the race and how, more how you finish. Less how you begin the starting gun and more how you, you finish the cross, the finish line. Church, 12 years of Christian ministry, I've seen a lot of people start well in the Christian life, but they don't persevere to the finish. And there's perhaps nothing more painful as a pastor than what I call spiritual defection. That is people you've given your life to and invested in, and then they go off the deep end. 
There's nothing that's caused me to cry more in ministry than that one thing. And I've often thought, why don't people finish? They're like the one-hit Christian wonders. They're like the Mark Ronson or the Carly Rae Jepsen of Christians. For some of you who are, you, the last time you were current with pop cultures in the 1990s, they're like the Millie Vanilli. Did I hit everybody now? I keep going for the decades. I keep going. They're the one-hit wonders of the Christian life. And it always really grieves me, church. Doesn't it grieve you? No offense, but they come into church. They want to make this decision to follow Jesus. And normally they get really excited. They sit on the front row. No offense, front row people. But they sit on the front row. They join a connect group. Normally they're the ones in worship that are up front raising their hands. They seem like they're going after God. And then all of a sudden you turn around and look and they fizzle out. Where are they? What happened? Usually happens for one of a handful of reasons. I'll give you three of them real quick. Number one, sometimes it's just the pain of obedience. It feels great to make the decision to follow Jesus. It sucks to follow through with the decision to follow Jesus. I've been around college ministry most of my life. I've been, we've been around some fires and had some kumbayas and some affirmation circles. And boy, it's awesome. Boys taking off their sin, taking out condoms out of their wallets, and taking out cigarettes, and throw them in the fire, saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. Arms wrapped to one another, just crying it out. Feels amazing. Feels amazing to, to, to make the decision, doesn't it? Woo, it's emotional. It looks so cathartic. Just awesome to make the decision. But let me tell you what we don't tell them. It sucks to wake up the next morning and follow through with the decision. It's a lot more difficult to wake up and say, I'm going to follow after Jesus today. I, I said I would last night, but it's just the pain of obedience. In Romans 12, 1, Pastor Chad preached last week, that's the dilemma of living sacrifice, isn't it? See, the cool thing about sacrifice is the oxymorons of a sacrifice is when the flame burns, the sacrifice is dead so it don't get up. But, but, but God doesn't call us dead sacrifice. That'd be awesome. We wouldn't feel it, but we're living. So you know what that means? When the flame gets hot, we tend to want to get up and walk away. That's the dilemma. And so what we got to do is we got to stay right there on the pitchfork, right in the middle of the heat, and just let the heat keep burning us. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. You just stay on the heat. You stay on the fire. Even when it's difficult, you stay. The pain of obedience is not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed in the future. For other people, it's just they never really consider the cost of following Jesus. They love what Jesus had to offer, right? Like, get God on my side? Yeah, Pastor Greg, I'm in for that. Get Jesus on my side? Take me to heaven? Present me with no problems? Yeah, please. But what inevitably happens, I've told you, is at some point your obedience to Jesus takes you 180 degrees opposite of where you want to go. If it's not happened yet, it's coming. It's right around the corner, believer. There's coming a moment where Jesus' obedience will cause you to go 180 degrees opposite of what you desire. And the question is, in that moment... Will you say Jesus is valuable to you? Listen to me. Listen to me carefully. You wanted Jesus and comfort. Jesus and your viewpoint. Jesus and your relationship. Jesus and your boyfriend. But there's coming a time, and it'll come quicker than later. Jesus will say, it's not Jesus and, but Jesus or. And in his Jesus or situation, which is more valuable, Jesus or the boyfriend. Jesus or your desire. Jesus or your plan. Because it will come. Sometimes people don't finish they just give up from fatigue everybody say fatigue they just don't see the payoff for all their sacrifice they're not feeling the fruit they're not seeing the multiplication pastor craig i thought i'd be multiplied by now well, paul felt like that sometimes you know for being god's hand selected ambassador he got some really raw odd reactions to his sermons 
Like I preached a lot, but I've never had things happen to me like Paul. Like often his sermons ended with people trying to stone him. There was one time he's preaching all night long, and there's a dude up in the windowsill named Eutychus, and the dude falls asleep. I've had people fall asleep in my sermons, but I never had people fall asleep fall out of a window and die. At least not yet. Paul had some pretty odd reactions. Odd reactions. Paul said, I know the pain of following Jesus and seeing no fruit. I know that. And none of these things move me. Oh, I know it, but it don't move me. Why? Because I just want to finish my course. Why? Because I look forward to the end, and I see Jesus standing at the end. And when I see Jesus standing at the end, it don't matter. None of these other things move me anymore. Under the difficulty, the fatigue, the cost, the pain of obedience, none of that moves me because I see Jesus at the end. In fact, Paul staked everything on whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. He writes to some tired believers. Everybody say tired. 1 Corinthians 15, some tired believers, some weary believers, some church planting believers, some people who've been planting and pouring and investing and not seeing any fruit, and he comes to me and says, look, you got to decide, believer, whether you believe Jesus rose from the dead or not. You better stake everything you in Christian ministry on the fact that Jesus died and did he rise again or did he not rise again? In fact, he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, first of all, he said, we apostles are liars. You, you don't listen to us. We're not nice guys. We're not great religious leaders. We are frauds and phonies. He said, second, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, you're still in your sins and your faith is empty. Your faith is futile because the resurrection, he said, is the proof that God accomplished his salvation and our salvation on the cross. He said, furthermore, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, those saints in the Bible, Abraham, Moses, and everybody in the Old Testament who died believing in the promises of God, they are lost. They're not with Jesus. They're better off just to live in their own life as hellions. He said, if Jesus didn't die from the dead, arise from the dead. He said, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, all of our sacrifices in this life are worthless. We might as well go squander it on wild living. All the hardships we grow through, all the sacrifice, all of it's for nothing. And we are of men, go read it tonight, of men most to be pitied. But he said, if Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus got up out of the grave, he said he will turn every death and pain and difficulty and challenge into life. If Jesus could be resurrected by the Father, God could turn his death into life. He can turn your sacrifice into life. He can turn your pain into life. He can turn your sickness into hell. Why? Paul says, this really happened. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he was beaten and tortured until he died. Afterward, a Roman soldier rammed a spear through his side to make sure he was dead. He was buried in a bar tomb. They put a garrison of soldiers around him. And then three days later he was up walking around. Folks, let's just put aside church for a minute. How unnerving would that be? You go to a funeral. You watch your friend go down in the ground. You put the dirt on top of the coffin. You put the flowers. You go to Starbucks on Tuesday and they they walk up in Starbucks and say, hello, how you doing today? That is called unnerving. And that's what Paul said happened. He said if it happened, it changes everything. Nothing in my life is now outside of the resurrection power and realm of Almighty God. So he says stay steadfast be immovable keep the vision in yourself be unmovable in your service to me it's always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor he said it's not in vain because the God who brought resurrection out of Jesus' word will bring resurrection and victory out of yours my God, church, some of you need to renew this vision this morning. Some of you need to get a renewed vision of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of you need to get a renewed vision of why you ever began this journey, why you ever started this journey. Why? Why? Because you've just gone along with the crowd for some time. You've lost the vision. you you, you got to ask yourself today, do you really believe Jesus is resurrected? Do you really believe Jesus is on the throne? Do you really believe Jesus is able to take horrible circumstances and turn them for your good? I told a couple of teenagers the other day, I said, I don't know if it's a true story, but it's a story I've given for years. There's a grandpa and a grandson. They're on a porch out in the country. Grandpa's house. There's ten dogs up under the porch. 
All of a sudden, one of the dogs perks up. He starts barking. He looks out in the field. He takes off running. About a minute later, all the other rest of the nine dogs get up. They start barking. And they take off running after the other dog. The grandpa looks at his grandson. He says, grandson, here's what's going to happen. Go ahead and mark it on your time clock. Within the next 10 minutes, all those last nine dogs, they're going to come back one by one. They're going to come back with their tongues out their mouth and their tails between their, their legs. And they're going to come back and go back under the, under the, 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 the uh, deck, under the porch, and they're going to fall back asleep. He said, watch what happens. 45 minutes later, you'll see that first dog. He'll come back, and he'll be coming back to the house with a rabbit in his mouth. He said, you know what's different between that first dog and the other nine dogs? He said, the first dog's the only one that saw the rabbit. The other nine are the ones who just barked because it was exciting to be a part of. And the movement was happening. Can I tell you what happens? People get in churches and they're the other nine that bark. But let me tell you, when it comes difficult time, you better have seen the rabbit. You better have the conviction that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. When you get the conviction and saw the rabbit, you don't come back and put yourself under the porch. You come back and say, you know what? It's all worth it because I've seen the rabbit. I got the deep inner conviction that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Let me tell you, when you get that rabbit, there's no demon in hell that can stop you from accomplishing God's purpose for your life. You've seen the rabbit. You've seen the rabbit. He said, I finished strong. Come on, somebody say, I finished strong. And then sixthly and finally, come on, Ben. He said, I gave more than I took. I gave more than I took. I gave more than I took. Woo. Verse 33 and 35. I'm not making these up, by the way. They're right out of, out of the speech. Did you read it with me? He said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Look what he says, verse 35, by, by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Think about this, church. The last thing Paul says to them, his final words are probably the most significant words. The final words I would give to my son are probably the most significant. The final words I tell, whisper to my wife, are the most significant. And Paul's last words are about the generosity they're to live their lives with. You don't think generosity matters? Oh, how mistaken we are. To follow Jesus, you have to have a life defined by generosity. You got to give more than you take. You got to give more than you take. And Paul thought the most successful, blessed life is one in which you give more than you take. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He gave more than he took. His whole life had been defined by giving, not receiving. And even on the night before he died, you ever thought about this? What did Jesus do the night before he died? He washed his disciples' feet. Folks, if Jesus came to me today and said, Craig, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, you got to die for all dwelling places. You're like, okay, that's not too good, God. But if i got to put my focus on them tomorrow, I'm going to have me some me time Sunday evening. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus, even on his last night, didn't have any me time. He had all you time. He had all them time. Is that what you look like in your marriage? Listen to me. Is your marriage right now, listen to me, married people, do you think it's more blessed to give than receive? Do you think your spouse, and you serve your spouse more than you expect them to serve you? Guys, listen to me. What preferences do you think more about? Ladies, whose comfort and happiness are you more devoted to? Yourself or your husband's? In your friendships, you ready? If you're not married, people in the room. How do you relate to your parents? Do you give more than you take? Do you give more to your parents than you take, or do you take from your parents more than you give? Paul says the key to a happy, blessed relationship is to give more than you take. How about your career? Do you, do you look at your career, career primarily as a tool to get all you can? Or do you look at your job as how it can be used to give to the mission of God? The first English Bible ever written was written by a man named William Tyndale. Everybody got an English Bible in front of you? You got an English Bible in front of you because a man named William Tyndale in the 1500s got saved. 
All the original Bible is in Greek and Hebrew. All the Bibles were chained to the Catholic Church, the, the pulpit. You could never get it because the common people were not able to read the Bible. For a thousand years, the Bible had been locked in Latin. So he said, you know what I do? I'm going to translate the Bible into English so the Englishman can read Latin. You know what he did? He set out to begin to write, and he translated the whole Bible. He went into court one day. The, the court didn't like it. He said, he said to him, he said, by God's grace, every plowboy in England would know more of the Bible than you corrupt priest. They didn't like that. They put him on a stake. They strangled him and then burned him. They didn't just do one or the other. It would be good to strangle. They strangled, then they burned. Well, that would have been the end, right? We wouldn't have an English Bible. Nope. That's the part of the story I knew. I didn't know the other part of the story until I read it out of, out of a book called Gospel Patrons just a few weeks ago. God intervened through a godly businessman. His name was Humphrey Monmouth. Bad name, awesome dude. Humphrey Monmouth was a, was a merchant who owned a fleet of ships who was rich. He provided the money to translate the whole Bible. And then he uses English ships to, to smuggle the first English New Testaments throughout England. He says, very few people have heard of Monmouth, but his partnership with Tyndall changed the world. God had get, raised up a businessman for such a time as this that the gospel would be spread to the ends of the earth. I'm asking you, businessman, how do you use your career as a leverage for the gospel and the mission of God? gave more than I took I gave more than I took would you bow your heads with me across this room do you look at your life as given to you to multiply church because that's what it means Paul says to follow Jesus it means I'll make sure my community knows about Jesus I'll direct people's attention to Jesus not me I invested deeply in God's church I've been faithful to do what Jesus told me to do I finished strong and I gave more than I took I'm going to come down off this stage. I'm going to ask this team to lead us in worship. What I'm going to do is come down off the stage and stand with you. You know these altars are open every single time. We have moments like this for you to come feast. We don't lay out the gospel and then not allow you to feast. We're going to take a moment of our time here this Sunday morning to sing a song to the Lord and reflect on these six principles. Where are you weak? And ask God's grace to fill the gap. Where do you need God's grace to come in and provide strength? Strength weaknesses and trials and temptations, whatever it is, whatever areas. It's okay if you take that card and just look at it, just evaluate, just allow the Holy Spirit to shine His light and just fall, fall into the arms of Jesus, the sufficient Savior who's able through God's grace to fill the gap. Would you stand with me all across this room? Let's begin to sing to the Lord and ask His grace to fill our souls. Can we just worship? Again, thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at www.dwellingplacemovement.org.